Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. If you're listening to this show, there's a good chance that you listen to NPR. And if you listen to NPR, you may have heard Aisha Roscoe's voice on the airwaves. Does that mean that you would take on a place like Illinois, which is gerrymandered in favor of Democrats? Talk to me about what it is like to be a Black woman trying to climb the ladder in higher education. The legendary TV producer Norman Lear died at 101 years old last week. As a host, Aisha asks difficult questions, and she brings us the news on NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday and Up First. In a new essay, Aisha says that there were moments of self-doubt in her career. When she became editor-in-chief of Howard University student paper, Aisha questioned whether she deserved it. It was another student and a professor who spoke to her about having more confidence in her leadership. And while it may not have been advice that she took right away, she's definitely taking it now. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. That essay is part of a new collection edited by Aisha Roscoe. It's called HBCU Made, a celebration of the Black college experience. It features contributors like Oprah Winfrey, Branford Marcellus, Roy Wood Jr., and Stacey Abrams. They all wrote about their time at HBCUs, or historically Black colleges and universities. Through slavery and segregation in U.S. history, HBCUs were a way for Black Americans and all students to attend higher education schools despite legal discrimination. Today, we're talking to Aisha about those essays and her career as a journalist. Aisha Roscoe, welcome to Disrupted. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about this book. The timing of it is critical You know, I'm a a mom to a high school student who's thinking about that next phase of the journey. So there are lots of conversations. But before we talk about this book, I want to start with a thank you. As I was getting ready to go to church yesterday, I'm listening to an interview that you did talking about the experiences of Black women in higher education. Here to talk with us about the weight of this moment is Joy Gaston Gales. For a lot of us, particularly if we are in predominantly white institutions, it's hard because you'll find that you are the only one or one of few. And that's been the case for me. And, you know, when you're the only one, when microaggressions happen, when gaslighting happens, you question it to say, did that really happen? Did that really happen to me? As a Black woman working in leadership in higher education, I paused because I thought, who else could have led this conversation but a Black woman who understands what it means to be in institutions and in spaces that never imagined you and to navigate that the way that you did. So I want to start there by thanking you for that interview and that conversation. But it also makes me curious about your role in the seat at a public media institution. Talk to our listeners a little bit about that journey for you. 
You know, th- thank you so much. Thank you. And I'm I'm so happy that we were able to do that, um, uh, you know, w- with the doctor and that she was able to, to talk to us um, so frankly um, and so clearly about um, some of the issues that Black women in higher education um, face. And that is what I really treasure about the platform that I have now is that I can give a voice um, to people who are not always heard and not always listened to. Um, And so I'm so grateful for that. I think, you know, coming into public media, I didn't know much about the space. Honestly, I didn't grow up listening to NPR, uh, but I always knew it was it was just a very elite space. It was very highly respected. Um, and, and, and so it was someplace that I wanted to be, but I didn't know much about it. And when I got into it, like I learned, first of all, I love NPR's coverage. I'm not just saying that, like we do really, really great work and really, really great journalism. And I want more people to know about that. Um, I also recognize that I, you know, I, I do sound different from the sound that, um, a lot of public radio listeners, listeners, um, we're used to, not in the sense that there have been amazing, amazing Black women on public radio. There are so many of them. Um, but um, I think my particular dialect is a bit different. Uh, I sound like a Southern Black woman who hasn't had a lot of, you know, I didn't come up in broadcast, so I didn't get that training. Um, so I just kind of sound like myself. And so I, not that other people don't sound like themselves, but I sound like myself and myself is Southern and black. <laughs> so um, I think it stands out. And so the the audience has, has embraced me in a very special way. But then of course I still, you know, just yesterday I got somebody saying, NPR, when you gonna get Aisha Roscoe off the radio? She sound horrible. So, you know, it just, it's, it is what it is. And I'm smiling and nodding along as you're saying this because there's such similarity across our experiences. I grew up in Virginia. So the first time I heard you on air, I thought, oh, she sounds like people I grew up with. Like, this sounds like home. There's certain words that we say in different ways. And when I started doing public media, I remember meeting with a media coach who said, well, you don't really sound like a radio voice. You don't really sound like mm. a public media voice. You should work on that. Mm. And I took that in like, oh my goodness, no one's ever going to listen to me because I sound like what I sound like. And then I said, you know what? I can only be myself in doing this. And there is this authenticity that comes through, not just in your voice in terms of the sound of it, but an authenticity in terms of how you connect with your guest the types of stories that you tell. And it is clear across all the forms of media that you worked in, you are a storyteller at your heart. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You said you didn't come up in radio or or in like public media. What was the journey that you thought growing up in Durham, North Carolina, Mm -hmm. this is where I think I'm going to go and what I see for myself in terms of career? Oh, my goodness. Well, growing up in Durham, North Carolina, I knew I wanted to be a journalist. I was one of those people pretty much um, from middle school on. I wanted to be a journalist. I knew that um, straight off. I loved uh, history and English. I read a lot of hip hop magazines, Vibe, Double XL, The Source. And so I was super into journalism and I, I felt like this is what I can do. 
But I will say I didn't have like a real vision for it. I didn't say, oh, I'm going to, you know, I certainly didn't say I was going to be the host of a show or anything like that. I might have said maybe I'll be the editor in chief of a magazine. But I, once I got to Howard University, I, I was really just like, I just want to get a job. I just want to get paid to be a journalist. That was it. I didn't have, I didn't have like this very high goal. And I think, well, not I think, I was afraid to set goals because I was afraid that I would not be able to achieve them. Um, and so I think in many ways, I, I thank God um, that the vision that I feel like you know, the Lord had for me was so much bigger than what I had for myself. And so I think, I thank God that, um, I, I didn't stick with just my vision because my vision was very small. Um, and, and my life has taken me on a journey that's much bigger than I ever could have imagined. So hearing you say that and, and thinking about what you've achieved, you have been in conversation with presidents and heads of state. You have been in the White House as a journalist. You have asked tough questions of people that I imagine you never imagined you would be across from. And now you are in a situation where they have to respond to you. So it's amazing how the things that come into our life are so much bigger than what we can dream and imagine. But I'm also curious you know, people talk about this imposter syndrome of, am I the person to do that? Have you experienced that? And if so, what is it that you draw on to say, this is the opportunity in front of me and I'm going to make the most of it? Oh, I, I dealt with it so much. I mean, it was it was my identity for a long time. <laughs> it was just imposter. I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here. I, you know, think every day I'm gonna be fired. I'm not gonna make it. Um, and and so I think it took a lot of time. Um, it also took. I think. I, I think for a long time I ha I would look at myself and say, well, I'm not this type of journalist. I, I'm not this type of reporter. I, I, I'm not, I, I can't do what this person does. And I couldn't see the value of what I brought to the table. Um, and I, I really feel like, you know, when I came to NPR um, and really and started doing this work that I'm doing now and able to, and was really able to develop my own voice um, and then to see that my voice and my questions and my that it it mattered and that what I was bringing to the table mattered. And so I think that as time has gone on, I have come to the the recognition of or come to the place of that what I bring to the table matters and that the that no, I'm not like everyone else, but I do have something to offer. Um, that, you know, my unique story and my unique, um, the way that I present myself, the way that I, I, I look at the world, the way that I, you know, I can't think quickly on my feet and all these things and that that is worthwhile. Um, and that I do have something worthwhile to bring to the world. And, and I try to tell that to other people is that, you know, you being yourself, you bring something that no one else can. And even though that sounds cliche, it's really true. Like, what you bring to the table, no one else can do. And once you can figure that out and figure out how to, to do that to the best of your abilities, that's when you really can shine. And that's when you really are at a place 
where you don't have to worry about being an imposter because you're being yourself and can't nobody tell me how to be me. You know, can't nobody be me better than me. <laughs> so like, I think that's when you can get to the place, but I still have it. You know, I still have lots of doubts at times. Like, I mean, I do, but I'm, I'm much better than I was. You're listening to our interview with NPR host, Aisha Roscoe. Coming up, She'll talk about her decision to edit this new book of essays. It's a testimony. It's a testament um, that people can say in their own words, like how HBCUs have made the world a better place by helping these, you know, to helping people, both the big names and the names you don't know, to really find the best of themselves, to become the best of themselves, and then to, to put that out in the world. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're talking to NPR host Aisha Roscoe about her new book of essays that she edited and contributed to. It's called HBCU Made, a celebration of the Black college experience. I wanted to learn more about Aisha's time at Howard University. It's often called the Mecca for Black education. Asked her about the role that Howard played in shaping who Aisha is as a person. I feel like it really set the course of my life. Um, You know, I was a very shy, introverted girl from Durham, North Carolina. And going to Howard felt like going to the big city and, and just going to this place where there were so many people and so many different types of people. And I had to stand on my own. I, I think at Howard... I learned about um, the value of always being prepared. You know, you got to come correct because <laughs> if you don't, people will call you out for it. You know, Howard is a tough crowd. You have to be ready. You have to show up, not just in how you look, but in what you know. Um, and you have to know that you know. Um, and and so I got that really instilled in me in Howard. And, and I, you know, I feel like the seeds that were planted at Howard, you can see the fruit of them in much of the work that I do um, and the way that I am and just this development of my voice and knowing that my voice matters. I remember the first time I went to an event at Howard 
And I just stopped and just took it all in because it was literally the diaspora in front of me of people from Eritrea and people from Dominica and people from Jackson, Mississippi, all together figuring out for themselves, not just who they were, but as a community, what did that look like and feel like and holding people together and doing that. And that leads us to this book that you have edited, HBCU Made. You open by saying that when people asked you where you wanted to go to college, you would say, out of state. Why out of state? And I asked that question, too, because there's some amazing HBCUs in North Carolina, in addition to other schools. But why out of state? I wanted to get away. And yeah, there are a lot of great HBCUs in uh, North Carolina. My mother went to Winston-Salem State. My sister went to Winston-Salem State. My brother went to Shaw. Um, I have so so many family connections to HBCUs. Um, and, and, And so I knew that that path was there, but I wanted to... I wanted to get away and really to discover who I was, right? I had, I didn't have many friends in in high school, really none at all. We had moved around a little bit uh, and I really wasn't good at making friends to tell you the truth. And so I wanted the ability to come into myself and my own, on my own terms. And I felt like if I stayed in North Carolina, I would always feel like I was that same girl who had always been and that I could never be anything different. Um, And so that's why I wanted to go out of state. And Howard felt, it just felt really cool, really chic. It felt like, you know, everyone, you know, everyone talks about it. It was the, you know, it was the inspiration for Hillman on a different world. And I, I just felt like, oh, Howard just seems like this really cool place. And I wanted to be there. And I think about all that's happening in the U.S. right now in higher education, in community in particular, of young people, particularly Black and brown young people saying, I have choices, I have options, and I want to be in a space where I don't have to explain myself, where I can just be however that is, whatever that looks like, as young people are grappling with that. And then to have your book be this collection of voices and experiences from people. Some are are well-known names that everyone knows, like an Oprah Winfrey. And then there are others who, if you know their field or you know their imprint, but there is a common thread through all of their stories. Why the decision to tell this story of HBCU made, HBCU imprints in this particular way as a collection of essays? Well, you know, when Algonquin, they actually, the publisher of the book came to me and they said that they wanted to do a collection of essays um, so that HBCU alum could tell their own stories. And they said that this hadn't been done before, um, not by a major publishing company. And to me, it just seemed um, wild to me that this wasn't already out in the world. I would have thought that this should have been done long ago. Um, and so when they brought it to me and I thought about my experience at Howard and what it meant to me, I I knew that I had to take it on because I wanted to give back 
just a little bit of what I got from Howard. And also, I just think it's so beautiful in this this book that I really feel like it's really more like a, it's a testimony. It's a testament um, that people can say in their own words, like how HBCUs have made the world a better place by helping these, you know, to helping people, both the big names and the names you don't know, to really find the best of themselves, to become the best of themselves, and then to to put that out in the world. And so that's what I, I love that this book is really people telling their own stories about why HBCUs matter. One of the essay contributors for HBCU Made was comedian Roy Wood Jr. Roy was a guest on our show just last year. And I'm just alone and just you just see me and you just see this room of tuxedos and ball gown dresses and just opulence. And I'm just sitting there just like, I don't smoke, but I imagine that's when a smoker pulls out a cigarette. <laughs> and it's like, I did it. Love it or hate it, I did it. In Roy's essay, he talks about being suspended from college for stealing jeans. He goes on to say that it was that school, Florida A&M University, that, quote, saw me for the man I could become instead of the man I was at the time, end quote. That theme of redemption shows up in many of the essays in this book. I asked Aisha what that theme means to us as a country, especially in this moment. You use the word redemption, and that's exactly the word that I would use. That's a theme that I feel like came up so often in the book. And I think Roy Wood Jr.'s um, story is such a perfect example of that. You know, he got in trouble with the law, and he's frank about that. And yet he got that second chance. And now we have Roy Wood Jr., you know, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner and doing such a make get at the Emmys, um, you know, winning an Emmy. And so... You see how I think that you see over and over again, and there's another story, Marquise Brown, who went to Hampton, who's not as well known, but he's a digital marketer. And he talks about how he got in trouble in, in high school and didn't really apply himself. And he got to Hampton, but he got there and he had to take, you know, remedial classes and go to, you have a tutor. And, but he saw a black mathematician was, was the one who was tutoring him. And seeing that and seeing someone tutoring him a black man, a mathematician who's not judging him, who's not looking at him as like a failure <laughs> to the race. Um, that meant so much to him. And then he ended up graduating from Hampton with honors. So I think that uh, there, a big piece of HBCUs is taking students who other institutions may not have seen the value in, but HBCUs can see a value and they can pour into them, as you said. And then so much is gained for the entire society from that. Coming up, more with Aisha Roscoe. She'll talk about the pressures that she felt in high school during the years that she lived in Oxford, North Carolina. I mean, it's crazy that it's 2000 and this school hasn't had a Black valedictorian. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking with NPR host Aisha Roscoe. She just edited and wrote the introduction to a collection of essays called HBCU Made, a celebration of the Black college experience. The book includes essays by people like Stacey Abrams, who graduated from Spelman College, and Oprah Winfrey, who graduated from Tennessee State University. I was living at my father's house. I was commuting from East Nashville every day. Then I'd get home and I'd work in my father's store. And on weekends, I'd be reading news at WVOL. I asked Aisha about the variety of schools that are represented in the book and if including that diversity was intentional. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are about 100 HBCUs in this country. Um, So there are a lot of them that are not Howard, that are not Morehouse, you know, that are not these names that everyone knows. Um, And I wanted to make sure that we shined a light on, say, a Talladega, on a, you know, on a Dillard, on a Morgan State, so that people can see um, that there are a lot of HBCUs out there that are worthy of um, that are worthy of support, um, that are worthy of donations. Uh, you know, like Spelman, I think, just got $100 million, and that is uh, incredible. Uh, but there are a lot of schools out there that are helping to shape um, the next generation of leaders. And so I wanted, I was very intentional in wanting to make sure that we had both big and small schools represented uh, in the book. You just used the word worthy. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of this passage in the book where you write in your introductory essay, at Howard, I didn't have to worry about trying to break into spaces that Black people have been shut out of. And you explained how not having to do that by being viewed as worthy allowed you to explore what you wanted to do and who you wanted to become. What was it about Howard that allowed for that journey of exploration that perhaps you wouldn't have had at another school? Well, I think that, you know, for me, you know, I talk about in my um, my essay about how, you know, when I was in, I, I lived in Durham, North Carolina, but I also was in like a small town for a couple of years of Oxford, North Carolina. And so it was always, you know, being in these classes where I, honors classes where I was like one of the only black people in the class, um, sometimes the only one. When I was number one in the school uh, in Oxford, they had never had a black valedictorian. It was just, it was a lot of pressure. And like, I mean, people, strangers, you know, black adults would come up to me and say, you know, we're rooting for you. We, you know, we're so proud of you. And that was awesome. But it was also a lot of pressure because, you know, I mean, it's crazy that it's 2000 and this school hasn't had a black valedictorian, you know, and it's still, you know, dealing with like the vestiges of, of segregation and, and Jim Crow and to have all of that weight on you. It's a lot. Um, and it, it, it's a lot to feel like you have to live up to when you're just a kid, just trying to, you know, you know, just doing your work and just, just, you know, just trying to be a regular kid. Um, And at Howard, I think there is absolutely an expectation of excellence. I mean, without a doubt, there's an expectation of excellence, but it's not 
as much tied to okay you're because you're not the you're not the first black person here to do this the first black you know the only black person in this you know it's much more just about a universal expectation of excellence and a universal expectation of doing your best and bringing your best and performing at a top level and less about um being the only one and having to prove um that you belong somehow as I'm listening to you recount your experience, and I'm glad that you said, you know, it's 2000, and this is the first time the school had a Black valedictorian, because people now like to act as if this happened so long ago, <laughs> as if we are yeah. so far removed from this, and why do we need to talk about it? And to think, look, it was just 20 years ago that mm. this kind of academic achievement was happening amid all of the barriers and challenges mm. to doing that. And it also made me think about, you talked about the pressure mm. that not necessarily we intentionally put on people who are excelling or who are first or who break through, but that internal thing of, I don't want to let people down. Yeah. I realize yeah. I'm the first and now people are going to look at me differently and anything that I do that may you know, deviate a little bit from that expectation of perfection will be judged in a very different way. Mm-hmm. That Aisha has also been a critique of historically black colleges that mm-hmm. because of that profile, that they tend to lean more conservative in their culture or respectability politics mm-hmm. coming through. Was that a part of your experience or, or what you heard in these essays about navigating the weight of being a part of, I guess, what Du Bois call the talented tenth or, or being spotlighted in that way mm-hmm. when the reality is? life lives for a lot of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that that's a very important point. And I and with this uh with this book, I wanted to and I think because I'm a journalist especially, I didn't want it to be a PR piece. I didn't want it to be fluffy. I wanted it to have I wanted it to be a love letter, but I I said even when I was, you know, requesting essays from people that that love is not um doesn't mean that there are no flaws. Um and that love really means uh, being able to hold people accountable um, because you love them and you want um, these institutions to be the best that they can be. So we definitely touch on this idea of respectability and the way you should carry yourself. Um, you know, I, I think you had Nicole Perkins, who's an author and a poet. Um, she went to Dillard and she talked about some of those, you know, uh, respectability, homophobia, um, on on campus, um, this this view of how women should behave that can be, you know, um, very much traced to sexism. Um, you know, when I was in school, we were definitely being told, uh, you know, when you go to an interview, don't wear your natural hair, don't, you know, don't wear braids, present yourself a certain way, make sure you wear the suit, don't be, you know, you have to admit, it was a way that you were supposed to present yourself. I'm glad that now with the Crown Act and all these things, people are pushing back on that idea. And I think some of it, you can look at it and you can say they were telling you that it was necessary because in many ways it was, right? Like you have people that are coming up and they're saying, look, if you want a job, this is what you have to do. But I am glad that HBCUs can give people a voice to the point where, younger generations can push back and say, no, we don't, the status quo is not good enough. 
and we're not going to be able to address our way out of oppression and we're not going to be able to just straighten our hair out of oppression um, and that we should be able to be our full and authentic selves even in the workplace. So I, I think the work is always to be done. I think part of the beauty of HBCUs is that, you know, a lot of them have very strong protest cultures just among the students. And the students are the ones who will push HBCUs to be everything that they can be. But they're not perfect by any means, by any means. And they have to be pushed. I appreciate you saying that. The the ways that students at HBCUs historically, whether we're talking about in Greensboro, North Carolina, mm -hmm. or Orangeburg, South Carolina, or Jackson, the ways that students have always interrogated the democratic mm -hmm. ideal, have interrogated the failure to protect that most basic level of humanity, and not allowed others to benefit from what they were struggling with. And you actually opened the book with two quotes. I love that you open with a Drake quote. Um, and, you know, my team always jokes because I love pop culture and I feel like pop culture can help us understand politics in ways that, you know, my lecture in class could never do. And you also opened the book with another Howard alum, Toni Morrison. And that quote is the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. Yeah. Talk to us about that decision to open the book with that quote. Well, I think because I saw it throughout um, over and over in the essays um, again and again, what you saw was people saying, look, I by being at an HBCU, I didn't have that distraction of having to first prove that I'm a human first prove that I'm capable of thought, um, first prove that I belong here, that I didn't somehow sneak through the back door. Um, you know, we live in a world where people will throw out uh, words like woke, and now it's DEI, just because you are a Black person in a space. <laughs> you know, it's just like, they see you, oh, this woke. What does that, I'm just here. You, you're a diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like, I'm, I'm a Black person in a space. Um, and they just automatically will question, well, why are you here? <laughs> you know, where in ways that they would never question an all white panel that they never get the question of how did you get here? Why y'all all white? What is going on? <laughs> like, was this, you know, that they, they would, did, was this merit? How did all you white people merit getting here? <laughs> like, it's never a question. But as soon as a black person steps into a space, there is a question of merit. Where, where's the merit here? Something's not right. Something's not adding up. And so you saw over and over again, and, and, and Stacey Abrams has a, a beautiful quote about how when she was at, um, you know, about how when she was at Spelman, it allowed her, um, it was a place where she had the ability to see more of herself. Um, and she said a dear friend said it was called Spellman a respite from a world that ne could never truly see her. Um, and I think that that's why I say um, I started it out with that quote, because it is a distraction and it is hard to function. People do it every day, but it is a distraction. This book, this collection is a love letter to HBCUs. And love is difficult. Love is complex, right? Yeah, yeah. Being in love and having love for is always this dance of where we go. 
But really, I read this collection as a love letter to Black people, to Black Mm -hmm. excellence, and to Black futures and Black possibility. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot, right? To capture for people who are often told that they are not worthy or capable of love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you think about releasing this book into the world, when this interview airs, the book would have already debuted. What is it that you hope that that releasing that love into the universe, what do you hope that the book does for people who encounter it? I hope that this book, I I hope that it brings joy and a sense of pride in Black people about these institutions, HBCUs that came up, you know, some before slavery, some during and after slavery, um, and really as a place to educate free Black people. And when I think about that now, I think about what it means to be free, what it means to be liberated. And I think it's still important when you think about if your objective is to educate free Black people, that's an objective to, in my mind, it's not just about, okay, free from slavery, but what does it mean to truly be free? And I think to I think that HBCUs are really an exploration of of black liberation and what that means. And so that's why there's still a push, right? That's why they still are worthy because for black freedom, that's something that we're still fighting for. We're still fighting to just say that we're human. We're still fighting to say that we're worthy to be seen in all of our different ways and cultures and and shades and that we do have culture and, and, and that all of these things. And we're also still fighting to say that as free people, we are worthy of respect. We are worthy of love and that we have made the world a better place. And so that's what I hope that people get from it. I hope they learn about HBCUs. I hope they understand why they're important and why they're why they're worthy of support and celebration and, and their importance to this world. One last question for us, thinking about freedom, thinking about joy, thinking about liberation. We are in what I am sure will be a lively election season. Given your role, given what you do and the many spaces that you are working to remind people of their freedom and their joy and their license to pursue it with vigor. I'm curious what you will be focusing on in this election season to remain grounded and to continue telling the stories that you're telling. What are you focused on? I think this election season, I really, you know, as always, I want to focus on um, the policies that, you know, each person who will be running for office, what, how they actually impact people. That's, that's always my focus. It's like, what actually will the policies do? Not just personality, not just horse race. I'm really interested in how these decisions affect actual lives. I'm also always interested in, um, the, the, the people that fall through the cracks, the people that we don't pay as much attention to. So, you know, the people who've just gotten out of prison, the people who don't make much money, the people struggling to pay back their college loans, who are struggling to make ends meet. Those are the people that I'm always focused on and concerned about. And I want to be able to tell their stories. I want to hear what matters to them. I want to be able to report on what 
what are they looking for from politicians and what do politicians have to say to them? Um, those are the, the people that I'm always looking for. And I'm always, you know, I, I'm a black woman. So I'm always thinking of two, how is this going to affect black people? Black people, once again, black voters will have a huge impact on the election. Um, and they are going to, there's going to be a huge role, um, whether it's Biden, you know, advocating for his black base, whether, you know, it's the GOP trying to win over black voters or get them to stay home, quiet as it's kept. Um, but it's, they're going to play a role. And so I'm always interested in what, what is going on with black voters and what matters to them and, and how this race, um, will impact their, their lives. And so that's, those are the things that I, I try to stay focused on when it comes to elections. Well, we are so glad that you are committed to telling these stories and really reminding us of our power collectively. Aisha Roscoe is host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday. She's editor of the new book, HBCU Made, a celebration of the Black college experience. Thank you, Aisha. Thank you. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you love an episode, please remember to leave us a comment. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>